Well, I want to start today's sermon in an admittedly odd place and an odd subject, and hopefully it'll make sense. Uh, but it is the subject of belly buttons. So, uh, and I'm serious about this. Uh, we, we use the term that most of you are probably familiar with in our culture of navel-gazing. You familiar with this term, navel-gazing? Uh, we tend to use that as a very negative, and rightfully so, a negative term. Uh, navel-gazing has come to mean, uh, for various reasons, this uh, to this act or this what typifies a person who just is obsessed with themselves, who's like self-centered with themselves, who doesn't really care about other people, who doesn't even look up to look around or care for other people, but is so turned downward looking at themselves, caring about their own life, that they're consumed with themselves. They think the world revolves around them. But the irony of this, I was thinking about this, and this will lead into the, today's subject and text, is that I think if we actually, instead of thinking metaphorically about navel gazing and like meta picture of it, if we actually just thought about our actual belly button, it would actually teach us the exact opposite of pridefulness and arrogance. And it would actually remind us, if we have eyes to see it as we look in the mirror, of our utter dependence. That the, from day one of our existence, that we were never intended to be independent or function independent, to live on our own, live in our own strength. Your belly button is a visual reminder to you till the day that you die, that when your existence started in the womb of your mother, you were utterly dependent upon her for your very life. For months and months and months, you were fed through that umbilical cord. Blood was pumped to you. Nutrition was pumped to you. You had the security of your mother's womb for months. And if we, I think, if we would have eyes to see it, our navels, if we would gaze at them, don't do that now, but if we would look at them, they would be a reminder to us from the very beginning of our existence, we are dependent creatures. And we like to believe that we're not when that umbilical cord gets cut, uh, when we exit the womb, and then as we start growing and, and years pile up and we get smarter and stronger and we can feel like we can provide for ourselves, we can look out for ourselves, we buy into this illusion that we are independent creatures, uh, that, that we can take care of ourselves, we can fix problems, we can anticipate things, we can provide solutions to any problem that comes. But... Our dependence doesn't end at birth, does it? Uh, the first numerous months, at least, if not years of our life, we're utterly dependent to be fed by others, to be cared for, to be protected, to be looked out for by other people. And I, I mention all this today because we're going to come to this last subject in our series, a seven-week series we're calling Values. The subject today that this text is going to lead us to think on and hear from God about is the subject of dependence. Uh, to, to remember as a church, these values that we're going through these last seven weeks ending today, we're calling it values because we want them to be values that we have mark us in the life of our church, in our private life, our public life, our classes, our groups, our gatherings. Everything should be marked by these things. Uh, we've covered thus far, and the six that have preceded this, we've covered the values of grace, truth, love, family, godliness and joy and this last one we, we save till the end this value that we call dependence and because we, we will see from this text that the lord wants us to remember our absolute dependence upon him uh, to not buy into this illusion that we have that physically we're independent that economically we're independent that socially we're independent and then to conclude that spiritually we're independent but to remember from the word of god that we are spiritually dependent upon God for our very life, 
for our growth and godliness. We're going to see this from today's text. So we're going to look at this, John 15. We're going to look at just verses 4 and 5. So two short verses tucked away in John 15. Before I read this, what was going on in this text, if you have a red-letter Bible, these will be red letters. These were things Jesus actually said. And he said them the night before he was about to be arrested and the night before he was about to be crucified uh, in our place upon the cross. A couple weeks ago, when we were looking at the value called truth, we looked at John 17, which was part of that same evening. We're kind of rewinding in time just a little bit back, maybe an hour before, I don't know, to John 15. Jesus said a lot of things that night. Uh, These are wonderful, glorious chapters to learn from. But we're going to look at a small cross-section of it, John 15, verses 4 through 5. And Jesus gives in this text a very simple analogy very simple picture, but a very powerful one, a very significant one that I think we need to hear as individuals, that we need to hear as a church. So follow along with me, John 15, verses 4 through 5. So the Apostle John recorded this, uh, having heard it himself that night. He now recorded it under the inspiration of the Spirit for us to hear and to read the words of Jesus. So Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. I think through this text, even through the words Jesus gave to his disciples that night, and now as he gives them to us, I think Jesus is trying to impress upon them and impress upon us a deep sense of dependence, a deep sense of utter, complete dependence upon him. And so how does he do that in this text? He, he says some other things around this, but we're going to try to zero in mostly on verses 4 and 5. How does he get toward that end? How does he try to impress dependence upon his disciples and upon us this morning? He uses this image, a, a very simple image, that I think even a preschooler could understand. I kind of test ran this at dinner last night, and even my four-year-old understood this image of a, a vine, branches, and fruit, right? Uh, even if you don't plant vines, I don't... I don't know much at all about vines. I have confessed that many times. I, I am not green thumb, but I can imagine a vine, like a main line, right, growing out of the ground, and then branches that shoot off of that, and then fruit that comes off of those branches. That's the image Jesus is using to make a point here, right? And he says in verse 4 this very obvious thing, right in the middle of verse 4. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine." right? The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And this is so obvious. It's so simple. I feel like it may be disrespectful to try to just explain this, but he is making the point that when there's this main vine, that if a a branch is detached from that, no fruit, right? That's the simple uh, illustration he's using, the visual, uh, simple image of a branch that is detached from that main line of the vine. And he's saying that if that branch is disconnected, no fruit is coming. No fruit is growing. It may have used to grow, um, but it will not grow if it is detached from the vine. Uh, To use a modern day, maybe parallel to this, if you just think through like our electrical grid, right? We have, even in this room, numerous power outlets uh, that we use for different things at different times. Uh, Those are connected to a system, right, that has a main source of power that, that sends it to them. 
If somewhere in that line there's a transformer that blows down the street or a power line that falls and a cord gets snapped, the whole infrastructure is still there, right? Like the, the wires are still there, the prongs can still go in, but there will be no power, right? It, there, there's some disconnect somewhere in the system that it's not producing, it's not pumping out what we typically would expect it to pump out when it's severed. And the same is true in the natural world with a vine. Uh, so the, as that branch is removed from the vine, it still may look the same. It still has the same interior workings within it, but its power source, its life source is gone, right? And so there will be no fruit growing on the ends of that branch. And so it's important because, uh, I, and we'll get into this more, but if you could imagine if you were a vine dresser and you break off that branch for whatever reason, even if you like set it right next to it again, even if you like leaned it up against it, uh, no fruit is coming, right? Like it may be close, it may be nearby, but if it is not connected into the vine, no fruit will come. Uh, so proximity to the vine is not what's ultimately important. Nearness to the vine is not what is important. It's actually being attached and abiding in the vine. That is how fruit comes. That's how in the physical world, fruit grows. And Jesus is trying to make a point though. So now that, that kind of uh, simple explanation comes, Jesus is not trying to make a botanical point, right? He's not trying to make a point about a vine and fruit. He's trying to make a spiritual point, right? He, he's using that very simple, obvious picture to make a spiritual point. Because you see, when he gets to verse 5, and he already alluded to it in verse 4, but he makes this very explicit that he's talking about more than vines and branches and fruit because he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. I'm the vine in this metaphor. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Uh, there, there is fruit that is to be grown by, upon you, through you, but I am the vine, you are the branches. And so Jesus uses that metaphor to make a point about himself and his people doesn't he? That, that's why he lays out this image of a vine, branches, fruit, is to make a point about him and his people. And there's some fascinating things going on as Jesus does this. If you know much about the Old Testament and the, the scriptures we have leading up to the arrival of Jesus, you may know that the nation of Israel that Jesus was part of had often been referred to as a vine in the Old Testament. But it was usually referred to as a vine that either would bear no fruit or that would bear bad fruit. Uh, you can look, the most clear example of it is in Ezekiel chapter 15. Tuck that away and you can read that sometime. But Ezekiel 15 is this really vivid image of the nation of Israel as this vine that is fruitless. Uh, that, that, G, that God the Father is ultimately going to cut off or cut down. And Jesus though in this text, on this night in John 15, if you look back at verse 1. He adds a word, instead of just saying, I am the vine, like he said in verse 5, he had just said to them right before this, I am the true vine. Uh, and so what Jesus is communicating through this image to his disciples is what Israel was intended to be in some ways, what they were supposed to be, this fruit-bearing vine, these fruit-bearing branches, but that they had failed out over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, I actually succeed. Like, I actually, where they have failed, where we have failed, I think he would even say that night, I succeed. I am bearing fruit. Like, I am living a godly life. I am following the commands of our Father like no one has before me. He's saying, I am the vine, the true vine that does bear fruit. But the glorious thing in this metaphor as he gets to verse 5 is he's not just saying something about, I'm the vine, like boasting that I bear good fruit. I, I, I'm the only one that can do this, although that would be right. 
But he's saying, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Like he's saying there's, there's now this new capacity that through me can come to you that you can start bearing fruit too. Like I've been able to do it. God has helped me to do this, enabled me to obey, me to bear fruit. But now you can as well. Something that you have no capacity to do, that I have no capacity to do on our own of actually bearing good fruit for God. Jesus is saying you can do that if you're connected to me. That's what he says, right? In the second half of verse 5, he says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, so whoever is connected with me, he it is that bears much fruit. And so that's gloriously good news for us, is that we actually can live the way that God has called us to live. We actually can bear good fruit for God, but it comes through Jesus. It comes through connection with him. Right? That, that's what the metaphor is. The vine, the branches, the fruit. If the fruit is going to come through us as the branches, it will be because we are connected with Jesus. Not because we're some impressive branch, not because of anything we do or try to develop in ourselves, but it will come because we are connected with Christ, because we are abiding in him. And this metaphor, this picture of the vine, the branches, and the fruit should make us remember, if we hear Jesus and hear his words here, this should remind us of our complete utter dependence upon him. If we are to have any spiritual life, if we're to have any spiritual growth, if we're going to see any obedience in our life, any progression in our life, it is, we are totally dependent upon him. He says at the end of verse 5, doesn't he? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot make yourself spiritually alive. You cannot make yourself spiritually mature. You cannot overcome sin in your life on your own. You cannot manufacture godliness in your life on your own. If those things are to happen, it's not going to be because of your efforts, your watering of seeds, your tending to the vine. It will be because Jesus pushes life into you. Jesus presses fruitfulness into you. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I like reading old Puritans. Uh, they get a bad rap sometimes. But there is one named Jeremiah Burroughs uh, who wrote some, uh, some wonderful works. Um, but he said this using a, a metaphor of a fountain that would have some overlap in what it's trying to picture with the vine imagery of Jesus. He said this. He said, From Christ as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavors and vows and resolutions as it comes flowing to them from their union with him. That is good news. We tend to think if I am going to grow in godliness, it's just because I work hard, because I suck it up and do the hard work and I make the hard calls and I put enough effort into this. That's how fruit's going to come. That's how godliness is going to come. And we will see that there is effort that the Lord calls forth from us. But behind all that... We must have Jesus working in us. Like we must have him connected to us, pressing life into us. If there's going to be any fruit, if there's going to be any growth in godliness, it will come from him. That's what this image is, connect, is conveying. But I want you to pause and think about something. Jesus has been telling his, think of the setting of this when he is saying this. as right before he's about to be arrested. Less than a day before he is going to be laid in a tomb dead. Right? 
And he's using this metaphor of this living vine and how there's going to be these branches that come off of that vine and that, that he can help bear fruit. And he's about to die. Right? He's using this image of if a vine is cut, no fruit's coming. Right? And if he is laid in a tomb on Friday, the next day after he says this, and he's the source of godliness, he's the source of life, like he's the source that, that any fruit will come through, what happens when he dies? No fruit, right? That's what we would expect, that there, there'd be no fruit, that this seems like a pipe dream, maybe as some people would read this, like this Jesus could keep living, could keep pumping life into us, could keep pumping godliness into us, but he himself is about to die. And so on that Friday and on that Saturday, people may have thought, well, we're hopeless to become this fruitful vine. We're hopeless to become these branches that actually bear fruit because the one guy who actually did bear fruit, who actually said he could help us bear fruit, now he's cut off. So how can we grow? How can we have life? How can we bear fruit in our own lives? And this is where the good news of the gospel comes. That Jesus was cut off. His life was cut off that Friday. But it wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because God the Father had looked at him and thought, what an un he has failed me. He has, has been unworthy. I'm cutting him off. The reason his life was cut short, the reason that his life was taken was because our sin got counted to him. Our fruitlessness got counted to him. And he was crucified and died in our place under the judgment of God the Father. And he was laid in this tomb. It seemed like that vine was cut. But there was no life coming to us. The glorious good news is that on a Sunday morning like this one, just a little earlier in the morning, that tomb became empty that Jesus had been laid in. That God the Father raised Jesus back up never to die again. It became, he became a whole different category of vine then, right? Like that, that before he was a mortal vine. As he took on human form, he could and did have his life be taken from him. But when God the Father raised him back up from the dead on that Sunday morning, he was made a vine indestructible, right? He, he was raised as a vine that could not be cut, that could not be threatened, that could not have its life taken from it, and that would live forever, that would pump out fruit forever. And the glorious good news for us is that we can be grafted into that vine that we can be connected into it, that we can be brought in connection with that resurrected Jesus who is alive, who is bearing fruit, and we now can as well. We can become spiritually alive. We can have Jesus start pumping life through us uh, because his life is unthreatenable. It is unseverable, and now ours can be as well. And what he calls forth from us as a response is not to just do great things to earn our way into being connected to the vine. All he calls for us to do is to repent of our sins and to put our trust in that Savior. To say, what you did for me is sufficient. Like, please give me life. Like, connect me in. Like, I can't do it myself. Connect me in. And praise God, if you ask that and you rest your soul upon Christ, God will connect you. Like you and me, these helpless branches who just have no fruit or dead fruit, who could do nothing on our own, like could not make ourselves alive, could not make ourselves godly. We are utterly hopeless on our own. 
we can be grafted in to the one place, the one person who can give life, who can bear fruit to us. And it's happened to many in this room. And if it has not yet happened to you today, today can be the day that that happens. That God lifts you up this dead branch and places you into connection with his son Jesus. He can start pumping life into you today that will never end. And I, I pray that every Sunday as we gather together that God would do that. And I, I pray that if that's you, that he would do that in your heart this morning. So our fruitfulness, our very life, depends on being connected with that vine of Jesus, right? And we, we could think then that, well, if my bearing of spiritual fruit, my, my good works, my growth totally depends on Jesus, then we could start to imagine that we are just these totally passive people, that God just kind of hooks me in to this vine, and then boom, voila, I just sit back and watch him do his thing, and just fruit starts coming out of me. And in some sense, that is true. But Jesus gives a command in this text, doesn't he? He, he says at the beginning of verse 4, the very first words you heard me read, he said, abide in me and I in you, right? That there's this command there. It's kind of an abstract command. It's kind of a mysterious command, but he says, abide in me and I in you. And so as Jesus, he, as Jesus was raised from the dead just a few days after saying this, and then a few weeks after that, as he was about to ascend into heaven, I think he wanted these apostles, the men who were in the room hearing this that night, I think he wanted them to know even as I'm about to like pour the Spirit of God out upon you, even as I'm about to give you gifts and abilities that will blow people's minds, I think he wanted them to remember, and he would want us to remember that all those gifts, all those good works that I'm about to do through you, they are dependent upon connection with me. It's not that I just save you and I kind of get you started and then I just turn you loose. And now I, I give you these gifts, I give you these toys, I give you these abilities, now go use them, go forth and, and share the gospel. He wanted them to know from then on they needed and must be connected with him. They must abide in him. They must stay with him, stay near to him if they were to have fruitfulness and this abiding in Jesus this staying connected with him is done primarily by engagement of his word and engagement of his holy spirit those, those are the two things you see even in the surrounding context here if you look at verse 7 for example you see Jesus talking about he says if you abide in me and my words abide in you and then he elaborates about prayer, which we'll talk about in a moment. But he, he references that a big way that there's going to be this abiding of us in Jesus and Jesus in us is going to be through the abiding of his word. That the things that he has taught, the things that he has said, the things he's commanded, that those things are to be in our minds. They're to be flowing into our souls, going into our hearts, and those will be the things that he uses to give life, to give growth in us, is this abiding in his word. And then in his spirit also. It, he talks much about the Holy Spirit that night. You can see a little glimpse of it down in verse 26, where he calls the, the Spirit, he either calls him the helper or the comforter, maybe in your translations. But he's telling them that when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of, the truth, uh, the spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so 
He is telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Spirit himself, the person, the third person of the Trinity, is going to help you remember me. He's going to help you know my presence, know my teachings, know my love for you, know my interceding for you. He is going to help you remember these things. And so abiding in Jesus is this mysterious idea to us, this kind of abstract idea, but at minimum it means that we are engaging with his word, we're hearing from him, and we're listening to the Holy Spirit. We're where especially as we come to the word, we're hearing from him. We're letting him remind us of Jesus. Him, even as we took communion, point us back to Jesus. Remind us of the connection that we have with Jesus. But if we are to bear fruit, if we're to have fruit come in our life, it is not going to come through just more education. It's not just going to come through like wise strategies It's not going to come through tactics. It's not going to come from just working harder and sleeping less and trying to just muster up the right uh, courage and the right disciplines. Those things are important. But growth and godliness comes by abiding in Jesus. I don't care what you do as far as disciplines. If you don't actually engage with Jesus, you won't grow. You won't. Like you may become more obedient outwardly, but it's not coming from Christ. Those aren't good works that actually honor God the Father if we're just doing things out of ethical duty or trying to just do things because they're right. If it's not coming from a heart that is engaging Christ, that's loving Him, that's being fueled by Him, then those things are worthless and we won't grow in actually bearing good fruit for God. Dane Ortland, who I, I quote sometimes, he's a brother in the Lord, he's a pastor in Illinois, has written several good books. Uh, he, he said in one of his recent books, he said, you can't crowbar your way into godliness. I love that. Like you, sometimes we think if I just put enough effort and, and do this in the right way, then godliness, boom, is going to come. But the way godliness comes is when we actually spend time with Christ. I was thinking this week of Acts chapter 4. There's this wonderful scene where Peter and John have been arrested. Uh, This is soon after Jesus ascended into heaven and they're starting to tell the good news and spread it. And they're brought before uh, the rulers and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem. And they're basically told to shut up and to stop. Uh, And uh, I love this, what Luke records uh, about these guys who are questioning Peter and John and who are kind of confused, like, why are these guys so adamant they're going to keep doing this? Like even when we threaten jail, even when we threaten death to them, what Luke records in Acts 4.13, and listen to the end of it in particular, he says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and then hear this, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what they knew to be true because of these guys' changed lives, is that they had actually been with Jesus. They had, and I don't think they just meant that they had spent a couple years with him, but that ongoingly, recently, even as Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were spending time with him. They were being with him, and that's what was leading them to be willing to lay down their lives, to not care about threats that were coming, to, to have this fruit come forth for them, was that they had been with Jesus, and the same is true of you. The same is true of me. If there's going to be fruit in your life, there's going to be fruit in the life of our church. It will be because we spend time with Jesus, that we are engaged with him, we are abiding with him. And some of us wonder why we don't grow in godliness. 
Like we wonder, why don't I see spiritual fruit in my life? Why don't I actually see change? And there may be various reasons, but it may be the very simple fact that we're not actually spending time with Jesus. We're just either like beating ourselves up with verses and these commands that we just wield like weapons against us and we're forgetting that Christ died for me and that he is raised for me and that he's my friend and that he's helping me. It could be that we just know these are the right things to do and that's the wrong thing to do and I just need to get myself to do it and we don't think of Jesus at all. Like we're just these ethical, moral people trying to do the right thing. And we, it is so important for us as believers to know that we don't just need Jesus for forgiveness. Like we need him for godliness as well. Like we have him for forgiveness, but if we're to grow in godliness, we need him also. We need him to pump life into us. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like do you really believe that? Do we really believe that? That apart from him, we can do nothing. We are utterly dependent upon him for spiritual life, for spiritual growth, for effectiveness in our mission as a church. So I want to take a few minutes at the second part of this sermon to talk about what dependence actually looks like in the life of a church. There's all sorts of things we could talk about that, that I could talk about, but I want to mention three things briefly, that if we really are a dependent church, a church that's dependent upon Christ for our life, for our fruitfulness, there's three things I want to mention that I think will be true of us, and they're these, that, that we will be prayerful, that we will be flexible, and that we will be thankful. Uh, and these are what I mean. We'll be prayerful first. Jesus' mind, even as he was speaking that night, using that image of the vine and branches and fruit, his mind immediately went to prayer. Like if you look down at verse 7, we kind of already looked at this verse, but he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I don't have time to get into the nuance of that. I know that can be a confusing verse. But I just want you to see that Jesus' mind went to prayer as he's thinking of this, this issue of abiding in him. He then goes to talk about what we ask of the Father, what we ask of him. And I think that is logical because I, see if you agree with this in your own experience. I think our prayerfulness or our lack of prayerfulness is probably one of the clearest indicators in our life of whether we really get our dependence upon Jesus. Uh, if we don't really believe that, that, that our life, that our growth, that our fruit is really dependent upon Jesus, if we don't actually really, truly, deeply believe that, our prayerfulness is going to wane, isn't it? Because we're going to start to believe this is up to me. That most things in life, most situations, most challenges I face, most sin I need to, to root out, most godliness that I need to see come true in my life, I can do that. Like, I, I don't need to pray. I don't need to ask for it because I can do it. Like, I can, I can fix this. I can grow in these particular ways. But th these apostles, I think, were struck by their dependence upon Jesus, their need for him if they were to grow in godliness. If you keep reading through what happened that night, uh, that Thursday night before Jesus was arrested, guess what they were not good at? Praying. Like Je Jesus asked them, I'm about to be arrested, guys. Like I'm about to be crucified. Will you stay up and pray with me? And none of them did. Like, and I probably would have been the same. You probably would have been the same as late into the night. They had just ate a bunch of food and wine. Like they're, they're probably tired. They were not good prayers. 
But you see, after Jesus was raised from the dead and after he ascended to heaven, do you know what these brothers were very good at? Praying. Like, because they had really taken it to heart that if there's going to be any life in us, if there's going to be any effectiveness as we get these threats come to us, it's going to be because Jesus does it, not because we are smart, not because we are strong, not because we are wonderful, but because Jesus is and he works through us. And that led them to pray and beg and ask over and over and over again for Jesus' help, for him to intercede, for him to do what they could not do. These men were uber-gifted. Like Jesus gave an abundance of gifts to them, but they were some of the most, if not the most prayerful people that have ever lived in Christendom, I think, because they knew that their work was dependent totally upon the work of Jesus. And I think if we let prayer be a last resort, like it often is in our lives, if we're like, man, I've tried, I've worked real hard at this, I've tried to sort this out, I can't get it, now I'm going to pray. What is that showing? That's showing that we, again, are under this illusion that we can fix most things, that we can deal with most problems, that we can produce the fruit that we think is needed, but we should be people who are praying early and often about everything, asking Jesus to to do what only he can do. And my hope, our elders' hope, I hope your hope for our church is that in the years to come, we will be a church that is marked by prayerfulness, that we pray not just when we're gathered together in worship, although we will, that we pray not just in our prayer gatherings that we have once a month on Sunday nights, that we not just pray. I, side note, I praise God. Some of you don't know this. There's a group of sisters in the Lord who pray every Sunday morning at nine for us, and I feel the power of that in our church, and I am thankful to God for them, and I, I want things like that to continue for us to really realize that is where the work is done. Is not just in prepping sermons or in teaching lessons or in, in doing hard disciplinary works in our life of putting self to death, but in praying and asking God to do what we can't, because we could do all those other things, And if God doesn't show up, if he doesn't pump life into this, nothing's going to happen. And we must beg him to do what only he can do and stop living under the illusion that is up to us. So we must be a prayerful church if we really understand our dependence upon Christ. Second, we'll be a flexible church. What I mean by that simply is that when we think about dependence upon the Lord, that, that he is the one who grows us, he's the one who gives life to us, that doesn't mean that we don't plan things, that we don't strategize, that we don't try to set goals and and try to work in certain ways. But what it does mean is that as we plan, as we seek to, to guide our steps towards certain things that we do so humbly, knowing that God may very well divert our path in a different way. That, that he may bring a change in the situation. He may be, bring a change in the people and the circumstance. He may totally bring about things that we can't anticipate. Uh, and he, we need to trust him to guide us. We need to not just have our, there is such a temptation, I will say, for pastors in today's world to think of how we're going to see fruit in our church and growth in our church to just think of strategy that's the books you read is like you need to do this you need to plan this event you need to to develop this type of team you need to to organize in this sort of way and that's how your church is going to grow and that is not true like those things can be helpful but God is the one who gives growth and we have to have a flexibility and adaptability to trust him where he leads us To not just think we can come up with the master plan, we can come up with all the right goals, but to trust him step by step along the way. Earlier in this metaphor, Jesus had talked 
as he talked about the vine and branches and fruit, he talked about how God the Father is like the vine dresser. You may have heard this or read this before. And he talks about how when there's branches that don't bear fruit, he prunes them, like he cuts them off so that it can bear more fruit. That happens in the life of churches too, that there may be things that we attempt or that we try uh, that we think would be wise, that we think, oh, this will bear fruit. This will be an effective way to, to see God work. And it may not. And he may have us cut it off or he may cut it off for us sometimes. And those can be painful things. But we must trust God in his sovereignty and in his direction of us. Proverbs sixteen nine says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? If we really believe that we are dependent upon the Lord, we plan, yes, but we plan humbly and we're flexible to trust him where he leads, knowing that he knows best. So we'll be prayerful, we'll be flexible. The last thing, if we're a truly dependent church, is that we will be thankful. And what I mean by that is that if we really believe at the depth of our heart and soul as individuals and as a church that every fruit comes from Christ, Every good work, every good thing that happens through us, in us, in our lives, uh, if all of those come from him, guess who gets no credit? Ultimately, us, right? Like, it, I appreciate what Pastor Tom shared, that at the cross there's no boasting. There should be no boasting, even if God, and I hope that he does, blesses our church and makes us abound in fruitfulness, and we see conversions, and we see revival in our church and in our town. If we see all those things, if we continue to see churches planted in unreached places, like I, I pray for often for the years and decades to come, if we see all these glorious things happen, guess what? They are a work of Christ. Behind us is Christ working those things. And we ought to be thankful to him for every good thing that he does among us. And to never be tempted to, to pound our chest and think, look how wise we were, look how sacrificial we were, and start to take credit for ourselves. But to long to see God do, I appreciate this about Pastor Larry. I don't know where he's sitting. He often prays, and I love this, and I've tried to pray it myself. He prays that God would do things among us that are only explainable by God doing it, uh, that are not not attributable to human will or reason or wisdom. I pray for that. I want God to do that, to just blow any illusion we have that we are smart and that we are wise. May we remember we are common, uneducated, weak people by ourselves, but Jesus can pump life through us to others. He can grow us, and that vine, vines expand, right? That they grow out. He may expand his vine and start new works and new places, but it will all be because of him and his power, not ours. The Apostle Paul famously said that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. That is true. And may we be thankful when we see it. May we never claim for ourselves uh, godliness and wisdom and power that ultimately belongs to Christ. We are dependent upon him. I mentioned belly buttons in the beginning of life at the start of the sermon uh, and how it's undeniable how dependent we are. I think the same thing is true as we come to the end of our life. If in God's normal providence we live into old age and we kind of see death coming to us, there becomes an inevitability to know that we are dependent again, where we have to acknowledge that again. That illusion of our strength, of our control, of our ability to guarantee certain things just dissolves when death is looming, right? Like we know that, man, I'm about to enter the grave. Like I'm about to, my body's about to start becoming dust again. And we 
must remember as we come to the end of life our dependence upon God. That if we're to be raised up, it will be because he raises us up. It will be because he grants us eternal life. He gives us new bodies. He grants us the ability to come to him in heaven and to be raised into the new earth. We are utterly dependent upon him for that. And we know our dependence in birth, right? In the early stages of life, we know our dependence in death, but we forget it through most of life. Like we live life as, as children and teenagers and adults under this illusion of independence, of, of I got this type of mentality. I, I pray that through this text and many others that God would slowly put that to death in us, that idea of our own strength, our own power, our own wisdom, but to remember that our life comes from him. Our godliness comes from him. Our fruitfulness comes from him. I want to do something before we sing. Our, our uh, midweek kids program started up on Wednesday night. Uh, it's called Lost and Found. And uh, every two years about, they go through a cycle of catechism questions. Um, it's called the New City Catechism, the one that we use. It's a series of questions and answers to try to help children learn the faith and to know some of the basics of, of doctrine and what the, the word teaches. And I want to teach you the very... The, the small young kid version of the first question and answer that they're learning. And I'm going to see if you can say the answer back to me uh, because it has everything to do with what we see today and even what we're about to sing about. But the first question and answer is this. The fir very first question, and I appreciate this is where it starts. The first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? That's the question. What's our only hope in life and death? And the answer that we're trying to teach the kids to say in response to that question is that we are not our own, but belong to God. That we are not our own, but belong to God. That's the answer. And so I'm going to tuck that away, that we are not our own, but belong to God. So I'm going to ask you the question. I would like us with confidence to say that, that we are not our own, but belong to God. So here's the question. What is our only hope in life and death. That we are not our own, but belong to God. Amen. May we believe that. Uh, that our very life is dependent upon him. Our resurrection comes from him. Our eternal life comes from him. We are a dependent church. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's pray and we will sing together. Father in heaven, uh, following this metaphor, we are mere branches that left to ourselves have no ability to produce good fruit, that have no life in us. That if we produce any fruit on our own, it's, it's not of good works, it's not of godliness, it is of evil and sin. But we are so eternally grateful that you have grafted us into the true vine of Jesus you have given life to us, that you can pump fruit through us. God, we pray that we would be a dependent church, that you would dissolve any illusion of our independence, of our strength, of our, our need to be wise and smart and, and strong on our own, but that we would have a complete and utter dependence upon your Son, upon you, upon your Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.